as we jump into this teaching series, uh, want to bring us to this moment. If you haven't been able to see it from the lobby to the stage, how many of you uh, deeply uh, or remember or you grew up with those like 1970s stop animation, like Santa Claus is coming to town and Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and all those? Yeah? Okay. I know I look like I probably shouldn't know what those were, but those were deeply held treasures in my home growing up. Uh, and, and this was, you know, you couldn't, like, there, we didn't have them on DVD or streamer, so it was waiting until, like, ABC showed them on the 14th at 6 p.m. That's, like, we carved that out. That was, that was time for Rudolph, you know? Uh, but, but in there, uh, if you remember, uh, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, in that story, uh, he is running away uh, because, uh, sorry, because... Uh, he's different, right? And if you remember in the middle of that snowstorm, he finds an island full of toys that are odd and mismatched and not what you'd expect. Pete, show the video if you don't mind. Charlie, that's why I'm a misfit toy. My name is all wrong. No child wants to play with a Charlie in the box, so I had to come here. Where's here? A sack full of joys for millions of girls and for millions of boys. When Christmas Day is here, the most wonderful day of the year. A jack in the box waits for children to shout. Wake up! Don't you know it's time to come out? When Christmas Day is here, the most wonderful day of the year. You like to be a spotted elephant. Or a choo-choo with square wheels on your caboose. Or a water pistol and shoot jelly. We're all misfits. How would you like to be a bird that doesn't fly? I swim. Or a cowboy who rides an ostrich. Or a boat that can't stay afloat. We're all misfits. If we're on the island of unwanted toys, we'll miss all the fun with the girls and the boys. When Christmas Day is here, the most wonderful, 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 wonderful day of the year. Well, if you don't remember it, there it was, right? Um, Man, so in, in watching this, and again, part of, I, I could probably recite that entire movie word for word. I've watched it so many times. Uh, but one of the things uh, that grabs me is in that moment, right, the choo-choo train with square wheels or the water pistol that shoots jelly, the idea is nobody wants them. Uh, and if you remember in the movie, in this island of misfit toys, uh, there becomes this place there uh, for toys like a Charlie in the Box uh, or an elephant was spotted, right, with spots, or whatever the, the case is. Um, and, and in this, they likewise would have been discarded had it not been for a good king who finds a place for misfits. 
And in the kingdom of God, what we find is, as you read through Scripture, is that it really we find the kingdom of heaven is this really, really unique place where the king finds a place for people like us who are discarded or not wanted or misfit out in other places around us. Have you ever felt like you belong on that island? You don't have to make any gestures, but you feel like the person next to you belongs on that island. <laughs> Just so you know, if you're sitting next to someone who laughed really hard, that's a sign, all right? Uh, maybe it's been issues like struggling to find belonging, looking for someone who sees value in your life. Maybe it feels like there is something about you that no one else wants or that there's nowhere for you to go. And if you look at the original account in Scripture, it's full of people and places who are misfits. Uh, The entire Christmas uh, account, right, Christ coming into the world, when you read it in the Gospels of Matthew uh, and Mark, I would even say John starts this way, uh, as you read it, you find is there's a bunch of people that doesn't make sense that they would be there. And what I mean by misfit, as we carry it through this series, is this, uh, is that it doesn't fit our expectations, We wouldn't assume that these are the kinds of people uh, that God would use to do something like this. There's no way that God would use a king like this or a person like that or a foreign woman like this or shepherds like these or a young, engaged, kind of married couple like Mary and Joe. This doesn't fit what we think of when we think of how God works. Unless you go back and read the entire Bible and realize it fits exactly in how God works, it just doesn't fit in how our world works. And so what I want us to do is I want you to see through this series that Jesus isn't just for the people who have it all together. Jesus shows up as a misfit savior through a misfit family to a misfit people. I'm going to read through uh, Matthew chapter 1. The first 17 verses, and if you would stand with me while I read this. Now, this is in your Bible reading plan. My assumption is these are the flyover verses. Uh, What I mean is your eyes catch the letters, but you don't really pay attention to the names or the stories. Most of it's because you're not really sure how to even pronounce a third of them, uh, right? Uh, But I want us to be reminded that when uh, God breathed Scripture and gave it for the rest of, of the church throughout history, he made sure this was in there. There's power in these words, and we're going to talk about it, but I want us to read through them so we catch the names and we see what we're doing. It says, the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham fathered Isaac, Isaac fathered Jacob, Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers. Judah fathered Perez and uh, Zerah by Tamar. Perez fathered Hezron and Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz by, Roa, uh, by Rahab. Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth. And Obed fathered Jesse. Jesse fathered David the king. David fathered Solomon by her who had been with the wife Uriah. Solomon fathered Rehoboam. Rehoboam fathered Abijah. Abijah fathered Asa. Asa fathered Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat fathered Joram. Joram fathered Uzziah, Uzziah fathered Jotham, Jotham fathered Ahaz, and Ahaz fathered Hezekiah. Hezekiah fathered Manasseh, Manasseh fathered Amon, and Amon fathered Josiah. Josiah fathered Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. 
After the deportation of Babylon, Jeconiah fathered Sheatiel. Sheatiel fathered Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel fathered Abahud. Abahud fathered Elakim. Eliakim fathered Azor. Azor fathered Zadok. Zadok fathered Akim. Akim fathered Elahud. Elahud fathered Eleazar. Eleazar fathered Mathan. Mathan fathered Jacob. And Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon fathered 14 generations. And from the deportation of Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, in, in this list of names that, uh, quite frankly, even in, in, in our own studies, it's hard to even find details on some of these guys. God, would you remind us and reveal to us God, show us in this um, what, what kind of people were in this family that, that you brought Jesus through. Uh, this promise that was given uh, to Abraham that carried through. God, would you, would you remind us of the kinds of people that you still use despite the way they lived, uh, that you still use despite their sins and hang-ups and mess-ups, uh, despite some of the darkest stuff we see in Scripture, and some of the greatest faithfulness we see in Scripture. Uh, God, that you still stay true, uh, that your grace is all we need, uh, and that Jesus uh, is, is, is where everything points towards. Father, we give all this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. Uh, as we read through that, I want to bring you into the story as well, and, and myself, uh, because many of the people in this room really struggle with the families we come from. When God sent his son to live among us, he showed up through a family. And it was a family with issues, like big, broken, terrible, dark, disgusting issues. All of us have some, at some level, bear the weight of coming from a family with generational patterns of sin and brokenness in the home that we grew up in. Uh, meaning there are things that trickle down through family because of what we grew up with. Some of you grew up in a family that really worked at living towards Christ in your home. And what I want to remind us is this, is that there are so many people all around you at work, in your neighborhood, and friends that battle daily with their history of their family. It's helpful for you to know, as you love and care for them, the family Jesus comes from, but it's also helpful for you to know that even though your family may have honored Christ, that doesn't mean that you are. And so there's a part in this as we read through that we'll find is that there, there's a generational thing that we carry, there's a trust we have to give that it's not just tied into where we come from. But there's others of you who have suffered greatly because of the family you come from. In these sections of scripture, Christmas reminds us that you can have victory despite your family history. Let's read through Jesus' family one more time and let me show you what Jesus' family had going on, Right? Uh, Pete, if you want to show the first slide there, we got some of these names. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, we remember some of the great moments of Abraham, but don't forget some of the first moments of Abraham. God's people start from a guy that just after he heard what God was going to do, goes into a town and pretends Sarah is his sister so they won't kill him to have her. Later, he gets impatient waiting for Sarah to get pregnant, so he gets together with their servant. And when that son is born, 
right? And then they, uh, Abraham and Sarah have their own son. They send the other one off with the, with the mother uh, into the wilderness. That's a rough first go for our first family. <laughs> Verse 2, Abraham was the father of Isaac. Remember Isaac? It's not a great one. He and his wife, Rebecca, chose favorites out of their twin boys, Jacob and Esau, tearing their family apart. Some of you grew up in families where there were clear favorites, and maybe you were the one, and maybe you weren't the one. But then Isaac, the father of Jacob, Jacob was this mama's boy, right, who lied to get his dad to get the birthright, a double portion of the inheritance and the father's blessing. If you remember the story, he ends up sending his brother away and lives in fear of death, creating tensions between families that last for generations. Jacob's 12 sons attempt to kill their brother Joseph. Remember the guy with the colorful coat? Because he was a favorite. Wonder where Jacob learned how to parent with favoritism. He's repeating what he saw his parents do. And the three older sons are killed because they sinned. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah and he and his wife have three kids. The oldest son, Ur, the Bible says, was evil in the sight of the Lord. Just so you know, when your name's written down, that's not what you want next to it. <laughs> Genesis 8, 38, 7 says, the Lord took his life. But he had married Tamar. And we've got to keep this PG because it's a first Sunday and we've got kids in the room. The next son is wicked and he dies. The youngest was too old or too old to marry, so he sends Tamar away until the youngest brother is old enough to marry. Tamar poses as a, let's say, woman of ill repute. Seduces her father-in-law, Judah, who doesn't know who she is, and now Tamar's pregnant. Right? You hear the Jerry Springer chant starting in the background. When he finds out she's pregnant, he tries to have her killed, but then she reveals it's his baby. But still at the end of his life, his three older brothers are passed up in Jacob's blessing, and it's given to Judah. Genesis 49.10, Jacob's blessing is this, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. Now pay attention, that's just verse 2. We're only four to five generations in, and this feels more like a bad 90s daytime talk show than it does an ancestral line of Jesus Christ. Your family and your past will not prohibit God's promises. Are you catching the note? He keeps going. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez. Uh, God didn't dismiss the people that used that twisted, messed up family story of posing to be a prostitute and getting pregnant to give birth to a child who would bring about the Savior of the world. As Rick Warren says, there might be accidental pregnancies, but God doesn't create accidental children. Maybe in your family, maybe it's you or your kids came out of a wild situation. That doesn't mean God caused it, but we see in Jesus' family that he can redeem it. Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Aminadab. Go ahead and say it out loud. I know you want to. Aminadab. All right, just want to make sure we got through that. Aminadab, the father of Nashon, right? Nashon, if you pay attention to the Exodus story, uh, Nashon's sister marries Aaron, who's Moses' priest in Exodus. 
Nashon, the father of Solomon. Solomon uh, gets married to a foreign prostitute named Rahab. How do we know? Because in verse 5, it says Solomon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Right? Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. If you read the Joshua, uh, the scripture in Joshua, uh, it, it's wild. And what we find is over and over in Joshua, all we read is Rahab the prostitute, Rahab the prostitute, Rahab the prostitute, Rahab the prostitute. But man, we get to this ancestral line of Jesus and what we're reminded of is Rahab was in the line of Christ. That part of her life was emitted. What is saved is this promise that keeps on flowing. How crazy is it that God, in breathing his word, made sure we pay attention to the fact that Jesus had really great grandmas who acted like prostitutes and some who actually were prostitutes, further pushing the point that God can use anyone. But they raised this boy named Boaz who is a good and kind man. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. If you remember that, go back to the book of Ruth. Ruth is a foreign woman in a desperate situation who's brought across the border into the family of God, showed kindness, and became part of the lineage of Jesus. So there's places for people who don't fit. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. King David's great-grandma had a testimony. David starts off really well, but when he becomes king, he uses his power and authority with Bathsheba, kills her husband to cover it up, and goes on to experience years of painful darkness. David becomes a horrible father who has his own children raping and killing each other. David's sins in his own life trickle down to become the sins his kids commit in their own lives. Yet despite all of it all, David is remembered as a man after God's own heart. Get that? After everything he'd done, it doesn't say his actions lived up to it, it just says his heart was connected to the right place. Solomon, whose mother was, sorry, David was the father of Solomon who had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, whose mother was Bathsheba, Solomon was one of 20 boys, and there was one sister, Tamar. Think about that, one of 20 boys. We've got four, and that feels like a lot, right? But Solomon's older brother was the result of that night with Bathsheba, and now here comes Solomon. Imagine the darkness hanging over that family growing up. Solomon had one of his brothers killed for trying to steal the throne, asked for wisdom, which brought wealth. He literally had thousands of women and more money than anyone before him. And with all his wisdom, King Solomon writes over and over in Ecclesiastes how meaningless all of it was. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam has to pay for the sins of his father wandering from God and has the kingdom taken from him and it divided the entire nation. Rehoboam was the father of Abijah. Abijah spends, ends up spending much of his life fighting for cities that were taken when his father lost the kingdom because of his Grandfather's sin. See how this trickles down? Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, rather than turning to the Lord, Ahaz looks around at the nations around him, or we could even say the culture around him, forms alliances with the big foreign kingdoms. He culturally bows to their cultures, their gods, and accepts their customs, 
to the point of sacrificing one or more of his sons to the Assyrian god, Molech. At the end of his life, he wasn't able to be buried with the other kings because of how evil he was. He was so bad, they didn't even want him to be near the family even in death. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah spends his life undoing the evil of his father, rebuilding what his father tore down, the temple. On his deathbed, he asks for more years, and God grants him 15 more. And even though Jerusalem had begun its rebuild in those last 15 years, King Hezekiah begins his spiritual downfall. The prophet Isaiah tells Hezekiah that all his possessions will be taken be taken captive by, the, by Babylon uh, and his family, and Hezekiah's last words were this, something along these lines, who cares as long as it goes well with me, that's all that matters. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, who became king at age 12, undoes the good works of his father Hezekiah by worshiping other gods and leads God's people to distancing themselves from him. Manasseh, the father of Ammon, Ammon worshipped other gods and worked to add cultural idols and gods to the culture of Israel. Get it? He's trying to take what everyone worships and values out there and brings it into God's people. And in 2 Chronicles 33, it says, furthermore, he did not humble himself before the Lord as his father Manasseh had done, but Ammon multiplied his guilt. A revolt of his servants raised up and they assassinated him, which made his son Ammon, the father of Josiah. Josiah is a good king, rebuilt and reformed the people of God back to the word of God. And then as you read through, Pete, could you flip through a couple verses? Okay, so we keep getting all these names, which by the way, there's just not a lot of detail about. And then you get to that last one right there. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who was called the Messiah. Wild. This is the family, these are the people, because God promised, he sticks with it. Get it? There were some shining moments in that whole family history. Actually, ones where we go back to stories we tell in our kids' classes because they are great, uh, kind of like what we would consider almost heroic, faith-filled stories. Right? David and Goliath is still my favorite, probably since I was four. Right? There's these moments, but man, the stories get twisted and crazy. The sin issues get deep and gross. I hope you followed through there. There were issues that went from dad to kid to kid to kid. Some of those even skipped a couple generations and went back to the next kid. There's these patterns in these histories, these things that grow, and my guess is it's not much different from your own family. I want to help us see this in the rest of our time together, is if you come from a misfit family, know this. And this first point, I just want to help you apply into this a little bit. I just want to start by helping us see some kind of helpful note for us. Your family history is a part of you, but it doesn't determine you. Right? Some of you are first-generation believers, uh, meaning your parents were not following Christ. That doesn't mean they didn't go to church. They just didn't follow Christ. Uh, some of you, you stepped foot into church trying to find where the book of Jesus was, and you didn't know what a testament meant, right? And God, has God been faithful? 
Some of you grew up in families where parts of this generation where you had parents who they were the first ones that turned to Christ. And what you experienced growing up was some of that messiness of them trying to step out of their old life into their new. And for some of you, you have parents who have fought hard battles. Some of you had to fight hard battles because of your parents. What I want us to see is Jesus' family history, the one we just read, it is tied to his name. And the same is true for us. You can't choose another family. And even if you do, it doesn't matter. Where you come from is where you come from. While you can't choose your family history, you can decide whether you will continue to attempt to lead your life or whether you will surrender your life to the rule and reign of King Jesus. Because throughout that family story, there was moments where there were decisions made to run away from God, and then there were decisions made to return back to God. Remember, we are like the people we just read about either bringing our lives and those around us back into submission of God or running away from him to live as Lord of our own lives. Here is something we have in common with Jesus, right? There's not a lot about us that's in common with Jesus, but here's a few things. Number, or this one, the only one who can redeem the generational legacy of your family is Jesus, because he's the only one that could have redeemed his, The forgiveness of God through Jesus, who had arrived as an infant, lived as a man, died on a cross, and broke the bondage of sin, raised to life, ascended to heaven, and promised that he's coming back. You don't have to be stuck in the pattern, sin patterns of your family. Jesus doesn't just forgive your sin, though that would be enough, but is making you to be a new creation, living as God's treasured possession with Jesus as Lord over your life. Uh, Over the last 11 years, uh, the church I was at before this at New Life, we would do these uh, encounter retreats. And the entirety of the retreat was set up for, uh, I I was only invited to the men's one, so, uh, you know, so that's all I can speak from. But the entirety of the retreat was set up to help people fighting through sin issues in their life that they have a hard time breaking through and they just need an encounter with God. A majority of the people are fighting and sin issues in their own lives that they grew up experiencing in their families, especially from their mothers, fathers, and often the grandparents before them. To sit in a room and hear hundreds of men say, I'm not bound to my past through Jesus, we would use these phrases, I am a cycle breaker and a legacy maker. The idea being is what I was handed down doesn't have to be what I continue to pass on Instead, through Christ, I could pass on a different kind of heritage because now I've been adopted into a different kind of family. It all starts when you receive God's forgiveness for themselves, but it was powerful to watch dozens, I would say, in my own experience, turn and forgive their father or forgive their mother or their family who they saw live in the same sin. I've seen men break cycles of infidelity, abuse, addictions, violence, laziness, abandonment, because that's what they grew up with, that's what they were passing on. And all of a sudden, Jesus comes in and they've got a new father and they've been adopted into a new family and we start to see some of what we do is more tied to the old self we're trying to crucify rather than the new self we've been given in Christ. None of that is possible or carries any real honest effects without the power of God. 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and righteous. Faithful and righteous so that he will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that's where it 
stops and a new story begins. Only God can save, redeem, and restore your life. If you come from a Christian home, here's how I want to challenge you. God has children, but he doesn't have grandchildren. What I mean is, he may be Lord over your parents' life, but that doesn't trickle to you until you become a child of his, receiving Christ as your Lord and Savior and walking with him. Sometimes we can take for granted because we had faithful people ahead of us that that's just a part of who we are without stopping to pay attention to the, uh, the, the depth of guilt and shame that maybe we carry that Christ has already done something about. It's almost like we're too familiar with the vocabulary to let uh, the, the reality of Christ sink into where we are, and it needs to happen. Second one is this. If you come from a misfit family, know this. Your problems and your family's problems do not affect God's promises. God told Abraham, your descendants will number the stars, and I will make you a people belonging to me. Jacob told Judah, your line will rule until the real king comes. What we remember at Christmas is the fulfillment of a long-awaited promise that Jesus, the king who will not fail, is here. It's the arrival of this long-awaited, as Josh led us in worship today, this long-awaited, we are waiting for him. He's coming. God's promise is coming. There will be a king who will not run the country down. There will be a king who doesn't mess up his family. There will be a king who doesn't mess all this up. There will be a king who redeems it all, restores it all, saves it all. Despite your family history, you need to know what God promises you. That God loves you and there's nothing you can do that separates his love from you, which endures forever. That through Jesus, you've been adopted as a child of God. That there is, that where our sin is great, his grace abounds all the more. That if You've been adopted into his family through Jesus, then your eternity is secured in him. That your weakness is a spotlight for his strength. He promises to always be with you and that he will never abandon you. He promises that the spirit of God in you gives you comfort, counseling, power, strength, direction, and gifts to help point other people back to him. Hebrews chapter 10, 23, we're reminded and says, let us hold firmly to the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? Because he who promises is faithful. Because if we're counting on our own faithfulness, this is messed up. But we can lean on those promises, not because we've been faithful, but because he is. I remember when Jonathan was younger, our oldest, uh, he'd been dying to watch the movie Black Panther. It had come out. Uh, and it was in the theater, it was all the rage, people were excited about it, I was excited about it, he was excited about it, but he was just a little too young, right? Uh, I, I didn't know, I hadn't watched it, so I didn't know, right? Uh, and so a few years went by, and I kept getting the, uh, Dad, how about that movie night you promised? It's like, yeah, man, we'll, we'll watch it, it's not just, you know, we're not, it's not time yet, it's not time yet, right? And there was a birthday, and it was kind of one of those where we, you know, where he was at, we kind of decided, you know what, this will be a fun movie night, but I had to tell him all along the way, buddy, I know, I, I promise, and I need you to know two things, right? Because he kept waiting for years. I made this dude wait. Number one, I need you to remember I haven't forgotten. And number two, it's going to happen. And I need us to be reminded when God makes promises to us, just as he did to Abraham and Judah and David, 
is that when God makes his promises, some of us need to be reminded, one, that God has not forgotten you. He sees you and he knows you. And two, it is still going to happen. Listen, God has not forgotten you. He is, everything he has promised either has already happened, it is happening, or it will happen. What you don't have to worry about is it not happening. The last thing is this. If you come from a misfit family, know this. God's grace changes everything. Anyone got that story? If Jesus' lineage reminds us of anything, it's that without grace, we're doomed. But with God's grace, we are forgiven and freed. That without it, everything falls apart, but with it, everything gets put back together. And in all of our human attempts, throughout all of human history, many have tried everything but this and have come up wanting But for the ones who have turned to the grace of God and for the ones who have received it and the ones who walk in it, you know as well as I do that without it, everything falls apart and with it, everything gets put back together. Remember, in our application of Jesus' family history, the major connecting point for us isn't that we are like Jesus at the end of a family of lunatics. The application point for us is we are like those lunatics. We are that misfit family. You and I are those people who, while we know what we should do, like Paul says, we don't end up doing it. And the things we don't want to do, we can't stop doing. It's like that family that God chose to work through. We live in this kingdom and we've been adopted into a family where we kind of remain in some of the same spots. Ridden with sin and rebellion, addiction and adultery, murder and malpractice, lying and looting, greed and pride, stealing God's glory while abandoning his authority and centrality in our lives. The darkest parts of of the church's history over the last 2,000 years have been when his people acted less like the Lord and more like his lineage. But you need to know. There is nothing that will put you out of your shame, guilt, self-centeredness, pride, impurity, and hopelessness other than the grace of Jesus. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, 7, he says, therefore, in order to keep me from being conceited, some of us need to take Paul's lesson in pride here. In order to make sure that pride doesn't lead, in order to make sure that I don't become conceited. He says, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me. Now, everyone's got their theory of what that thorn in the flesh was. All we know is this, is that there was something digging into Paul's life. Maybe because he says flesh, it was physical. Maybe because he says flesh, it was his humanity and the carnality that was in him. But he says there was something that kept driving to make sure Paul never got to the point where he was holier than everyone else. To make sure that because what God did in his life didn't result in a pride where he could say, well, look at all you guys because I'm up here now. Get it? There was something there that kept him from it. Some of you, the family you've come from has become a thorn in your flesh that torments you. Verse 8, he says, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you because my power is made perfect in weakness. Get it? 
My grace is all you need. It is sufficient. My grace is enough. This unmerited favor that you didn't deserve, but he's giving it anyways. And it's everything that you need. What you don't need is a guilt trip, a good self-examination. You can get yourself there. What we need is a God who reminds us the stuff in us that isn't him. We need to see sin so we can compare it and say, yeah, that's in there. And that's part of my life. And I do struggle with that one. Maybe, maybe I'm not as good as I think I am. Maybe because my family and I've just done better, I assume that I'm fine. What God does is he points out and says, you can't be fine without him. So we hear Paul say, the Lord told him, my power or my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. In this area of your life, would you surrender it to God, knowing full well that you can't do anything on your own but make it worse? The brokenness of your family is a place where God's power can do some of his best work. The issues you've struggled with, the things that you've come from, the things that you've had to endure and see, doesn't mean God caused it, but it does mean he can redeem something out of it. Paul goes on and he says, therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses. Sometimes the way we talk about other people is a sharp reminder that we don't boast about our weaknesses, we boast about our strengths. When we look at the world around us that's fallen and broken, leaders and the way they lead, decisions and the way that they're made, we can get in these prideful places because we know better than everybody. We can see how it's supposed to happen. We know how, the, if, if someone would just put me in charge, I'd figure all this out. But do you get the Apostle Paul's perspective? I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses. If you want to hear me talk about anything, you're going to hear what I'm not and who God is so that Christ's power may rest on me. It's this idea, I know full and well what I don't have and who I'm not. I know everything I can't do. I, I'm not saying I have a full, I, I'm, I'm pretty aware though, right? I, there's a humility that comes when we know what we don't have and what we can't do and who we're not. So that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why for Christ's sake, listen to this, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties, because when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Because in my weakness, God starts taking off. He starts showing up, he starts moving. I, I see what he can do because he sees what I'm not. I'm not trying to sit on the throne pretending I can be king of any of this. In fact, in my weakness, I get off the throne, I turn around and I bow to it, to Jesus who should be sitting there and is sitting there. And we start realizing my, my weakness down there makes my whole life stronger. God's grace worked through the weakness of the people in Jesus' genealogy is that same grace at work in you. When you come to the end of your own strength and after you've tried everything, when you are ready to throw in the towel, that's when his grace kicks in and his strength fills you. If you come from a Jesus following upbringing where your parents fought hard to model Christ in your home, would you thank God for that blessing that you received? But would you also deeply examine your life to find if your faith in Christ is rooted in humble surrendered faith or just some assumed salvation? 
And if you grew up coming from a family that has generational patterns of sin, much like what we talked about, that weren't battled through or worked on, that worked its way into your life at a young age, would you examine your life to see if you are going the same places and being led by the same desires? And ask your question this, how's that going? Would you humbly turn away from the brokenness of sin that you grew up with and turn to Jesus? His grace is all you need. We're reminded this, it's one of my favorite gospel reminders, I can't do it on my own because I try to do it on my own. I'm kind of a, I got this kind of guy. Uh, what scriptures reminded me, right? I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm not the best provider for my family, he is. I'm not the best father for my family, but he is. I'm not the best husband to my wife, but he's shaping me to become that more and more. I'm not the best leader, I'm not even the best friend, right? Uh, there's, there's a lot of things, I'm not, I'm not good at listening, which is why I like being up here and not out there. No, right? There's just parts of it where I'm, I, where I'm not, but man, where my weakness is, Jesus is made stronger. If any of us could do it, we wouldn't need him. Hear Jesus say this, my grace is all you need, and his power works best in weakness.